And I found three things. People who struggled with chocolate like I did, they tended to be lonely, brokenhearted, or a little depressed. They were struggling, struggling in a romantic relationship. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things like potato chips and pretzels and things, they tended to be struggling at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things like pizza or pasta or bread, soft, chewy starches, they tended to be stressed at home. Welcome to Body Sculpt of New York, six weeks to fitness podcast, where we hope to inform, motivate, encourage, and inspire you to live a healthier lifestyle. And now, here's your host, the president of Body Sculpt of New York, Vince Ferguson. Hi, I'm Vince Ferguson. Welcome to Six Weeks of Fitness, episode 188. Thank you so much for joining me today. Did you know that 42% of adults in America are obese? and that overeating and binge eating are major contributors to obesity. Now, if we want to get our health back on track, we must get a handle on our eating. And that's why I'm thrilled to have as my next guest, Dr. Glenn Livingston, a veteran psychologist and longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. His works have been published in major periodicals like the, uh, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times. Dr. Glenn was disillusioned by what this traditional psychology had to offer when it comes to overweight and food-obsessed individuals. So he spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating by working with over 40,000 participants. And here today to talk about this research and his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison and how you too can stop overeating and binge eating is Dr. Glenn Livingston. Dr. Glenn, how are you today? Very good, Vince. Nice to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Man, thank you for coming on the show and talking about such a timely topic. So let's, we have a lot to unpack. So let's get started with your own personal journey with obesity. Tell my listeners and viewers where it all began. I'll try to do it quickly. <laughs> um, but, but, but if you were familiar with the Woodbury Country Deli in Syosset, mm-hmm. and you happen to go there and find they were out of chocolate and pizza, it's probably because I was there before you. I'm not just a doctor that worked with, um, you know, with weight loss or or eating disorders. I'm I'm a guy who had a really serious problem myself. As a matter of fact, I specifically didn't work with eating disorders for a long time because I felt like I wasn't in control. Um, When I was 17, I discovered that if I worked out for a couple hours a day, um, because I'm I'm six four, modestly muscular, just naturally, that I I am. I could do whatever I wanted to, whole pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of donuts. It was, it was incredible. Uh, and I, I thought it was like a superpower. Like Doug Graham taught me that, that word, but um, I, I didn't think it was a problem. I just, I ate a lot. I slept a lot. I went to the bathroom a lot. Um, I was a happy guy. I was a thin guy running around doing some sports, chasing some girls, you know, it's like in, in high school. Yeah. Um, fast forward to when I'm married and I'm 22, when I'm in graduate school and I'm commuting two hours a day each way to see patients um, and coming home and having to work on the business. And then my wife at the time wanted to talk to me. I, I just didn't have time to work out. Like maybe, I mean, I know that's an excuse, but really I, I could work out a little bit. I couldn't work out like I was working out. And I was getting older and my metabolism slowed down and I started to get fat because I felt like the food had a life of its own. Hmm. Yeah. And 
the thing that bothered me the most, because I'm, I'm from a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists, and um, standing joke is that if something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels, and nobody knows how to fix it. <laughs> but the, th the thing that bothered me the most, because that's the most important thing to me, is to be a good psychologist, was that I, I couldn't be totally present when I was with my patients. I was always thinking, when can I get the next pizza? When can I you know, dislodge my jaw and go to the deli? And I worked with suicidal people. I worked with people who just discovered an affair. And I couldn't be 100% present. And, you know, uh, to my knowledge, only one couple out of hundreds that I ever worked with got divorced. And to my knowledge, um, nobody that I ever worked with killed themselves. So I guess they compensated in some way. But I just wasn't there. And I wasn't the best I could be. And it really bothered me. Nevertheless, coming from the family that I came from, I took a psychological approach. I, I, it's kind of like a love myself thin approach. Ooh. And I thought that if I could fill the hole in my heart, that I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. <laughs> so I went on this very deep journey and I saw the best psychologists and psychiatrists and I took medication and I went to Overdue's Anonymous and I did all the spiritual work. And it was a very soulful journey. I think it's a part of who I am. I don't regret doing it but it didn't really help with the food. I'd get a little thinner and a lot fatter, a little thinner and a lot fatter. And I climbed up to um, probably around somewhere between 280 and 300. I wow. developed a phobia of the scale. The last one I actually remember is 257, but you know, I was big. I, I'm, I hover in the low 200s now. Um, and and I, um, I, I eventually, since we don't have all that much time, I eventually, flipped the paradigm and I decided that it wasn't um, going to work trying to love myself in anymore. I had to be more like the alpha dog of my own mind and take charge. And here's why that happened. First of all, I didn't have kids and I didn't, didn't commute. So I, my ex-wife traveled for business all the time. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I started a second career consulting for industry. I'm not proud of this. I feel a little bit like the Marlboro man at the end of his life. Oh, yes. You know, who, who was yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, I do. Um, but, I, but I was like a hidden persuader helping big companies that were selling sugar to kids and everything. Um, and, and I was, I, I was on the wrong side of the war. Right. But because I did that in my youth, I learned that they're putting millions, if not billions of dollars into engineering these hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and, and salt and excitotoxins. And it's all designed to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to be satisfied, right? Yes. The result yes. of that is addiction. Yes. And so every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or, or container, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache laughing all the way to the back. Hmm. Right. It's they, there's they're not really evil people because the consumers kind of want them to do this and they want to, but it's a bad thing. It's a, it's, it's not not regulated nearly well enough, and it's a bad thing. And it, more importantly, it's a force that's very powerful outside of my personal psychology. It's got nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough. It's got nothing to do with the fact that I was in a bad marriage. It's just this outside force. Same thing with the advertising industry. Um, I remember talking to my friend who was a VP of marketing at a major food bar manufacturer, and he told me as he hung his head in shame and was leaving the company that the most profitable insight that they had was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put it in the packaging instead. 
because if they made the packaging multicolored and you know diverse, that it would signal the brain that there was a multitude of antioxidants available. That's why they tell you to eat the rainbow. Right. But he, he was faking us out. He was faking yeah. us out, and that was very profitable. It goes across the whole industry. Things like that happen across the whole industry. We could do a whole other show on that. The yeah. point is that I came to the conclusion there were very powerful forces outside of me that were targeting the reptilian brain. And what I knew about neurology was that the reptilian brain doesn't really know love. The most Ooh. primitive part of our brain looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I meet with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, meat, or it's like a college drinking game, right? Yeah. It's not until you look at the mammalian brain that's layered on top of it, either by evolution or because God put it there. Um, it's not until you look at that that you realize there's this structure that says, wait a minute, before you eat meat or kill that thing, what impact will that have on your, uh, on the one, people that you love, your family, your tribe? And then the neocortex says you can delay even further to be sure this is consistent with your learned harm from goals and values and things like health and fitness um, and, and, of course, diets. And the reptilian brain, which is the seat of the feast and famine response, it's the seat of all the emergency response systems, right? This is, this is the thing that causes you to make a biological error when you read, read a diet book over the whole weekend, you sat down and you made a plan, you did all your food prep, and then you're in Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar at the counter, and you hear that little voice in your head that says, you know what? You worked out hard enough today. You're not going to gain any weight. You might as well have a chocolate bar, um, even though it's not in your plan. Yippee, let's go get some. Besides, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, and that's a plant. Um, and, 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 and then your best plans are out the window. Well, it turns out we're designed like that with this emergency response system. It's just being hijacked. It's being hijacked by unnatural things. We, we didn't have chocolate bars in the savannah. Right? We're, we're not designed to deal with those concentrations of pleasure. Nothing wrong with doing it if you really want to. And I, I don't advocate people just live a totally austere life. But don't fool yourself either. It's, it's a drug. It's a drug. Hmm. You're, get, you're, you're getting a little high with food. So I saw all, all that going on. The food industry, the advertising industry, and the neurology of addiction and overeating. And I said, I'm going down the wrong road. I need to take control of this thing like any other bodily organ. Vince, if I really had to pee right now, I would uh, continue with the interview. I would tell my bladder, listen, I get it. You have to pee. It's a strong urge. But I'm an adult in society. I can hold my bladder. And you're here to serve me. I'm not here to serve you. I have to take care of you. I can't ignore the urge. But I'm in control. Same thing if there was a really attractive woman on the beach right now. I'm looking at the beach. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't run out and kiss her because society expects more of me also because I'm horribly shy and I'm not so, not so good at that anyway, <laughs> but, but I'm expected to control myself no matter what my testicles say, right? right. Um, why is this any different? So long story short, and I was not going to be public about this at all. And I have more stories I can tell you to fill in the details, but I, I decided that I was going to draw a clear line in the sand to distinguish between healthy and unhealthy behavior. I said, if I, if I need to know, if I need to be like an alpha wolf with this survival drive gone wrong, then I need to know exactly when it's active and when it's not. The only way to do that is if I make a really clear line in the sand and on one line is healthy behavior, the other line is unhealthy behavior I want to avoid. The first one I drew was 
I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have chocolate Saturday or Sunday. And this was all going to be private in a private journal and something going on in my head. It eventually wound up to be very popular. But this way, if I heard a little voice when I was at Starbucks that said, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. You're not going to get any weight if you have the chocolate. Um, besides, you can just start again tomorrow. Yippee, let's get some right now. I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner pig. And it's squealing for pig slop. Chocolate on a Wednesday is, is pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, as ridiculous as that sound, yeah. as ridiculous as it is, and as, as embarrassed I, as I am that that's what actually worked, it would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me those extra microseconds to make the right decision. Huh. And um, it, it wasn't a miracle. Like sometimes it would wake me up and I'd make the wrong, wrong choice anyway, but it, it did wipe away any sense of confusion. It showed me what the game really was. I no longer felt powerless, like there was this mysterious problem inside of me. I would, I would know exactly when I was crossing the line. And that gave me the opportunity to explore it in all sorts of other ways and kind of develop a methodology for uh, stopping the train in its tracks, getting back into my right mind and making the right decision. Um, so that, that's my story. I published the book. I took the journal. I kept the journal for eight years. And then as I was getting divorced in 2015, I turned it into a book. I published it slowly but surely it took off and um, now we have a million readers and six more books and um, people don't quite know my name but they'll recognize me in a bookstore and they'll go pig guy pig guy big guy yeah. <laughs> now the book is called never binge again yeah never binge again now for the purpose of my my listeners and read and uh, viewers what is the difference between someone who overeats and someone who binge eats so that's a question I get asked all the time. And I always cringe just a little bit when I'm asked because um, there is a very clear distinction um, as defined in the DSM-5, right. which, which has to do with the frequency of the episodes, the severity of the episodes, and um, you know how much you hate yourself when, when you do it. And you can look that up yeah. if you want to. Um, about 2.8% of the population meets the formal definition for binging. But from your own quote before, 42% of the population is obese. Yeah. So clearly, the problem with the question is that people have been asking, am I a binge eater or not? And the problem with that is that their pigs are asking, can we get away with it more? Can we get away with it more? Because we're not, we're not technically a binge eater yet. But you know, the 42% the of the population that's obese is contributing to a you know, a 80% increase in diabetes and a threefold percent increase in um, cardiovascular incidents and all types of death and disability and really very severe degradation of quality of life. Clearly, the other 40% of people that are obese but not binge eaters could use some help. And so since I'm not recommending a formal treatment, I'm not putting people on medication or anything, I'm a PhD, not an MD anyway, um, I suggest that the question you ask yourself instead is, do I eat beyond my own best judgment? And would I like to entertain a little mind trick, a way of working with my thoughts that might help me to stop doing that? Um, and that, by the way, it's not such a scary question. It's not, are you sick or not? Do you need medication or not? Should right. you lock you up? Should we lock you up in a, um, you know, a binge recovery ward for 30 days? It's, um, you know, could I benefit from learning to, to stop eating beyond my own best judgment? That's, that's what I like people to be thinking.
that question. Now, would you say that people are victims more so than let's say, is it their fault if they're overeating or binging, or would you say that's because of the what the food industry is doing? Well, um, I don't like the word victim because that involves an abdication of any responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the solution to this is to ruthlessly take responsibility. But by the same token, I don't want people to feel shamed or diseased or like it's you know, part of their genetics or something like that. Um, I do think the largest, in, I mean, I don't think we had food addiction 100,000 years ago, right? I don't think that, you know, Thag, Thag, was, Thag the caveman was sitting with Martha and going, me too much mammoth. No, um, I, no. I, I, I think that food addiction is a byproduct of all the um, artificial foods that are produced and how, you know, how tasty and concentrated they are in, in calories and um, how, how, how scarce the nutrition is inside of them, which leaves you wanting more. Um, so I don't, I don't think that we should tell ourselves that we're victims because there is a defense against this that requires a bit of work and responsibility taking. But by the same token, I don't want people to feel ashamed. You don't have a disease, you have a healthy appetite that's been corrupted by industry. You're not helpless and powerless over this. You can define some very clear rules and practices to take control. Um, you do have to put an effort in, kind of like the effort that it takes to get a plane off the ground or the effort that it takes to learn how to drive. But once you know how to drive, once the plane is off the ground, you can kind of coast. So there, there's a, uh, I want people to take responsibility, but not feel ashamed of what they've, what they've done. Okay, great. Now, but are there emotional triggers that cause people to overeat or binge? There's a strong relationship between emotions and overeating. When you overload the digestive system with digestive tasks, and foods that are not supposed to be there. The nervous system doesn't quite have the energy to conduct the emotion. So there is this kind of quote unquote numbing out effect of overeating. And that's why people say, I want comfort food. I don't think we should say that because the things that we're eating are not really for comfort. They're not really to quote unquote numb out, right. and even though they, they have an anesthetic effect on the emotions. And you can ask yourself, if you went to the dentist and he was out of Novocaine, does he offer to inject you with a bagel, right? If, if a bagel was really just for comfort and numbing out, then, then you could do that. Or does he let you eat a bagel and then just go ahead with the operation? Um, it's not really just for numbing out. It's an artificial concentration of pleasure that has a deleterious effect on your body. And another word for that is a drug. Right. I mean, it's not technically or legally a drug, right. but, but we didn't have these things on the Savannah. And so what I tell people to tell themselves instead, if they're struggling with overeating, is that they're not numbing out or comforting themselves. They're looking to get high with food. Now, that doesn't mean that the, uh, that the emotional difficulty doesn't deserve attention. Uh, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to therapy. It, I mean, I, I still fully believe in doing the inner work and working on the, on the emotional triggers. But what you want to learn to do instead of waiting to solve the emotional trigger or put out the fire before you stop overeating is understand that you also have a fireplace and that if the fireplace is intact, that the emotions can't burn down the house. It's only when there are holes in the fireplace and you haven't severed the link between emotional conflict and overeating that you're in trouble.
Um, so I, I tell people that that's the goal. We're trying to sever the link between emotions and overeating. We're not trying to solve the emotional triggers. The other thing people don't understand about emotions is that they assume that there's the fire and then burns down the house. Like it's a one-way relationship. But what if I told you that, and, and then you get overeating. Well, what if I told you that overeating also causes the fire, also stokes the fire? It goes in two directions. For example, a lot of people tell me that they can't go to sleep because they feel too anxious without overeating. So they need a lot of food to put them to sleep. And what they don't know is that anxiety has a lot of physiological correlates. So your heart rate goes up, your perspiration goes up, your galvanic skin response goes up, um, your blood pressure goes up, a lot of things go up. And you can measure that. And we've done a lot of studies with animals where you measure those correlates of anxiety. You can also reinforce it. So for example, a baboon, um, there's a study with baboons where they were taught to have consistently higher blood pressure by giving them a sugar reward every time their blood pressure was higher. When they then measure those baboons' blood pressure over the course of the day, not just when they give them the sugar reward, they have consistently elevated blood pressure. Hmm. So, so what that says is that your anxiety might lead to overeating, but your overeating also leads to anxiety. Many people will find that if they sever that link and they stop overeating, they're not quite as anxious as they thought they were in the first place because they're not constantly reinforcing it and getting a dopamine hit from the anxiety overeating link. Right. Yeah. Oh. So it's a complex Very relationship between emotions and overeating. Are there certain foods that people eat when they when they're in when they're having certain emotional situations? So, so, so I did this study. I did this forty thousand person study um, back when internet clicks were cheap, and as I was, I was figuring this all out for myself, and I intercepted people when they were searching for solutions to stress, and I asked them what they were stressed about and what they had trouble stopping eating when. Um, when they were stressed. And I found three things. People who struggled with chocolate like I did, they tended to be lonely, brokenhearted, or a little depressed. They were struggling, struggling in a romantic relationship. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things like potato chips and pretzels and things, they tended to be struggling at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things like pizza or pasta or bread, soft, chewy starches, they tended to be stressed at home. Now, I actually, actually went and talked to my mom about this because um, she raised me. She was a therapist and I, I'm, I was the chocolate variety. My, my binges always started with chocolate and then we would proceed to everything else. And I said, mom, why do I go to chocolate when I have this finding in this study? I might want to talk about it. Why, why don't I go to, to chocolate when I feel lonely or brokenhearted or depressed? And, you know, I'm struggling with that now. I'm not in a great marriage. Um, and she gets this horrible look on her face and she says, I'm so sorry, honey, but when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army and I was scared that we're gonna send him to Vietnam and your sister was on the way and I thought I'm gonna be an army widow with two small kids. I was terrified. At the same time, my dad, your grandfather just got out of jail and he was guilty and I had no idea. I'd always idolized him. So I was depressed about my, my father. Um, I was anxious about your father. And half the time when you came to me for love or to play or just for a hug, I didn't have the wherewithal to give it to you because I was sitting and staring at the wall, feeling anxious and depressed. Hmm. So I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup and I put it in the refrigerator on the floor and I'd say, honey, 
go get your chocolate Bosco. Go get your Bosco. And you go running over to it and you suck on the bottle and you go into a chocolate sugar coma, right? Oh, goodness. And, and so if the emotion, if the emotional conflict was the real cause of overeating, there you go. That's the match that lit the fire. This is like a movie moment. Nice. Um, but my eating chocolate actually got worse because, um, because there was this little voice of justification in my head that said, you know what? You're right, Glenn. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she put a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can get out of the marriage and get into a loving relationship, you're going to have to keep on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some. Wow. And that, that was like a thing that was poking holes in my fireplace. It made it possible for the ashes to break out by justifying it. And so my whole procedure, I'm going to have to go in a minute or two, I'm sorry. My whole procedure has to do with disempowering and fixing those holes. Wow. Yeah. Yes, yes. But lastly, what can we do to stop overeating and binging? One simple rule. Start with any simple rule, something you could and would do. Don't set the bar too high. Prove to yourself that you can follow one simple rule for a week or two. For example, I knew a trucker who was eating at fast food places three times a day, had a lot of weight to lose. And he said, I'm not going to stop eating at fast food places, but I won't go back for seconds. And he proceeded to lose 150 pounds. Not with that first roll. That first roll just got some momentum going, and it helped him to reclaim his spirit. Um, another person said, I am not going to give up anything. I'm not going to stop eating anything, but I'll just put my fork down between bites. And every time I put up. Some people will say, I'll only have chocolate during the week. Other people will say, I'll stop eating after 8 o'clock. Some people will say, I'll never eat in front of the screen again. One simple rule, something you could and would do that's not too difficult. Um, and st start there, and then I can tell you, um, we've got a bunch of free materials that people can look at. Too. Well, we can, we can get your book. How can we get your book? Neverbingeagain.com. Click on the big red button, sign up for the reader bonus list. You'll get a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format. Wow. You'll get a set of food plan starter templates that will show you sets of rules that mix with, you know, keto diet or plant-based diet or high carb, low carb, point counters, calorie counters. You'll have to modify them for yourself. I'm not a dietitian or a medical doctor. Um, and it only works when you modify it for yourself anyway. And the last thing is a set of recorded coaching sessions. This is all free. Um, I, I recorded them so you could see this isn't so weird as it sounds. It's at um, neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Excellent. That's where we can find out more about Dr. Glenn as well. Everything is right there. Yeah. Excellent. Wow. Got you, got you on our free forums and our podcast and everything. This is perfect for the time. The holidays are coming and when the holidays are over, the number one resolution is to eat healthier, to exercise. This is going to help people to do that, Dr. Glenn. So on behalf of Body Scope of New York, my nonprofit, and Six Weeks of Fitness, I truly want to thank you for coming on my show today. It was great. I really appreciate it. Thanks, <laughs> And to my listeners, I truly hope this program was informative, encouraging, and inspiring, and that you will continue tuning in to our Six Weeks of Fitness podcast. Any questions or suggestions for the show, leave them in the comment section below, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And remember, we don't stop exercising because we grow old. We grow old because we stop exercising. Hell yeah!